This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts and philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today uh, is kind of a part two with uh, Dr. Warren Lamb or uh, Pastor Warren Lamb. He's got a lot of titles, but uh, he tells me to just call him Warren Lamb. Um, we, we had a great discussion on psychology and biblical counseling in the first, first go around, and I've heard a lot of good feedback from you guys. And so we want to do another one. Um, again, talking about the relationship between Christianity, psychology, biblical counseling, the psyche, those kind of questions. Um, so before I spoil too much, let me just, let me pull them in. Warren, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Yeah, honored to be here. It's a lot of fun last time. I'm looking forward to, to this time again. Yeah, definitely. So I even, I, I took a lot of what I learned from you and I've been applying that to my life and to, uh, my marriage and a lot of that's been really helpful and just thinking through everyday life. Uh, yeah. Something that we covered initially was uh, the self sovereignty principle. Um, maybe I'm getting that wrong. What do, what do you call it? Is it a principle? Yeah, it's a self sovereignty. Yeah, it is self sovereignty. Self sovereignty. And right down to it, that's what Genesis 3 is about, right? right. About self sovereignty. And that is the number one battle. Yeah. And well, in charge? And, and it makes so much sense. If you think that you have to solve all of your problems, that you are the self-sovereign, man, the amount of stress that could come with that, the amount of damage that you can do to yourself by thinking that. Mm-hmm. And welcome to the world of humanism. Is that yeah. what humanism believes? Mm. Yeah, man, that's a good point. And so uh, last time, again, uh, just, just covering what we covered a little bit, you had talked about how there's four pillars. I think it's four pillars of psychology. Six pillars of, of psychology and how those are, are pretty much anti- antithetical to the Christian worldview. Can you lay out those uh, six pillars again for us? Sure. The first one in uh, psychology, modern psychological theory, is atheism. Mm-hmm. So definitively, there is no God. And we're not even talking agnostic, like maybe there is. It's atheism. There is no God. Is that method- methodologically they're saying, or are they saying like there, just, there is none, or, or we just don't assume there is no God. Okay. Theologically and philosophically, there is no God. Okay. Because they're also Darwinian evolutionists. Right. Right. They're also naturalists. Mm-hmm. So there is no supernatural. Yeah. So there's no, there is not, there is no God and not only no God, but there's no one, no God that is triune. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Darwinism will specific creationism. Mm-hmm. Then you've got naturalism. Well, we believe in supernaturalism. They right. don't even believe there's any supernatural beings. Mm-hmm. Prayer affords nothing other than making you feel better. Yeah. Right? Uh, no angels, no miracles, none of that stuff. But also materialism. Right? So naturalism says that um, everything that is in nature that is tangible, that's all there is. Yeah. You know, like I, I quote Carl Sagan, the very first line in Cosmos. Cosmos is um, the universe. The cosmos is all there is, all there was, all there ever will be. Right. Right. Well, that's foundationally at the root of modern psychological theory. Mm -hmm. You also have materialism was so there is no immaterial aspect of us. Mm -hmm. In theology, we talk about monism Mm -hmm. where where the, the the body, the soul, spirit, whatever is all the same. Yep. Well, we believe that man is, we believe in dualism, that man is material and immaterial. Right. Um, They also believe in humanism, as we talked about, which is uh, man is basically good. We have the the ability to 
um, live to the fullest of our potentially potential and solve all of our own problems. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also nihilism. So there, mm -hmm. so philosophically, nihilism or nihilism, as some people pronounce it, mm -hmm. says there is no real meaning or purpose to life. And when you die, you die. That's all there is. Well, mm -hmm. you can't, you cannot match any one of those up with just a basic biblical worldview, let alone evangelical Christianity. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's what I wanted to, to cover uh, in this episode without, you know, taking too many shots at people. There are, there are people who are self-professed Christians who are also psychologists. I wonder, um, I wanted to get into the relationship there some more and, and common grace. How, how is it that someone, I guess, without being too rude to their psychology, um, do you think that someone can be like a, a Christian psychologist, continue to practice psychology with well, the Christian I, worldview? My question to those folks mm -hmm. is, <clears throat> what's your starting point and mm -hmm. what's your ending point? Yeah. In biblical counseling, we start and end with God and his word. Yeah. That is our authority. We, we, and our definitions for everything are, are biblical definitions. Yeah. If I say you have a disease, you need a doctor. But if I say you're in bondage to sin, you need a savior. Mm -hmm. It really is that simple. Um, mm -hmm. So people who are, there are Christians who practice psychology, but they default to the pseudoscience of psychology. They believe it's science because they've been told that. But like we talked about before, the DSM-5, not a single thing listed in the DSM-5 is a result of research, hmm. empirical research, double-blind studies, any of that. It's all decided by committee. Yeah, that's so odd because that's, that's not what we think on the, the lay level. That's not what we're taught either. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, so so say someone was... was um, is it even is it possible for someone to say I'm starting with the word I believe in the Christian worldview and yet I still want to continue in psychology is is there is it too much uh, antithesis there or for me there is because I come from that world like yeah we right last time right mm -hmm. so I really do understand that world and I continue to be in conversation with people in that world believers and unbelievers alike and. Just the foundation is rooted in things that are, are antithetical yeah. to Christianity when God himself proclaims his reality and truth. Mm -hmm. Even the idea that uh, a person has a chemical imbalance right. is a problem. Yeah. There's no science to support any of that. Hmm. Matter of fact, if you take a look at the leaders in the psychology and psychiatry world, they know that's just a made-up construct, that there is nothing really about that. Hmm. There's no reality to that. You can't go to a medical lab and have your brain chemistry tested. Right. Right? You can have you can have your blood sugar tested. You can have your hormone levels tested. You can have all kinds of things tested. Right? But you can't have your brain chemistry tested because even though there are chemicals in the brain, yeah. you don't have a brain chemistry. There's not a construct, even like the, the gut biome. That's something that's really empirically they're able to study, but not, not no such thing as brain chemistry. Yeah, that's that, that's what I found so interesting. Um, again, we talked about this, but on the lay level, people really think, you know, I've heard it my whole life. Yeah, this guy, ah, that guy's kind of crazy. I don't know. He might have like a chemical imbalance or something. So when someone comes into a psychologist, um, the psychologist would you know, check what they've been taught and they would diagnose this person. And then um, are psychologists allowed to, uh, are, are, do they prescribe medicine or is that only psychi yeah, psychiatrists? Um, it depends on the licensing, Okay. Uh, the education, the licensing uh, of the, the state jurisdiction. Okay. Some, some states allow for psychologists with particular training to be licensed to prescribe. Okay. So, so then, when someone gets prescribed medicine, I never thought about this, but they're I'll call it medication because it's not medicine. Okay, well, what do you want to call it? Medication. Medication. medication um, is trying to provide a cure. Yeah. Medication is masking symptoms. Okay. Okay. So, uh, when someone's prescribed medication, yeah, they don't. 
they don't go into the lab and they don't look at their brain chemistry, right? They're looking at their, they're looking at, uh, they're diagnosing them based on their give and take and how they're answering questions. That's so interesting. Smart one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're you're catching on. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. That, and when we talked, let's think about it this way. Yeah. Actually have video of the same person going into seven different clinicians describing the same symptom. Hmm. They have each time they get a slightly different diagnosis and then prescribe multiple psychotropics, which are very aggressive neurotoxins. Yeah. And they're all different. And it says, well, you know, we just have to, we'll, it'll be trial and error. We have to try the different medications and different doses until we find the right. Where's the science in that? Yeah. Yeah, that right. If you can go in that many times and there's no consistency, uh, you, you would expect them all to go, oh, you know what? I, I got it. You know, we've been taught this. But because they're giving all these different ones, it it seems like a hodgepodge. Go to your physician and describe your symptoms. And they'll say, well, that sounds like that sounds like a cold or that sounds like the flu or that sounds like sounds like you've got you might have some uh, borderline diabetes. Let's do some testing. Mm hmm. And they'll be able to, to give you a more accurate diagnosis. There's nothing like that in the world of psychology or psychiatry. Nothing. Yeah. And that's crazy. I, I think so. Even the people who um, last time we talked about how you would you would never suggest uh, um, going with these kind of uh, medications uh, and, and that some people are like, whoa, dude, that sounds really extreme. I think most people, maybe not most, I think a lot of people are on board with you when it comes to, well, we, we call them psychotropics, but you, you pronounce it psychotropics, probably right. Uh, because a lot of mass shooters are on psychotropics, tropic kind of drugs. And it's, yeah. Yeah. it's, it's kind of common knowledge now that like, yo, there's something going on with these. Well, let me ask you this. If, if over a third of the people that are prescribed antidepressants have a dramatic increase in suicidal ideation, mm-hmm. where's antidepressant factor yeah they have an increase you're saying yeah wow over 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 a third of people who are are prescribed and take antidepressants one of the most common side effects is an increase or even an onset of suicidal ideation person wasn't really suicidal they were just really sad Mm mm-hmm they're diagnosed with di- depression. They're given an antidepressant, and now they're suicidal. Well, sure, sign me up for that too. Yeah. It, yeah. It wow. Counter. It just seems counter, not just counterintuitive, but counterintellectual. It just doesn't logically. It doesn't logically cohere. Well, and and that's funny because when you talk about this and you talk like this, the initially. You sound like the anti-intellectual, right? You're the one going against science and medicine and, and medication, right? But the thing is, I've got a pedigree that says I'm not yeah. an anti-intellectual. Right, right. But and many of my peers, many of my colleagues, PhDs, MDs, people who have a, uh, who have been studying this stuff for years, um, uh, there's a guy on our counseling team who I, I kind of joke that I'm a recovered psychologist. Well, he's a psych- recovered psychiatrist yeah. who was actually a, 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 um, a therapist and he got to the place where it was a, a Christian psychiatry organization, but they never talked about Christ. They never talked about the Bible. They never mm. talked about any of those things. And then all of a sudden he started noticing that when he would bring it up, um, he was starting to get shunned and sidelined. So he started having its battle between his faith and the practice hmm. and um, um, got a, provided me an opportunity to mentor him through, you know, escaping the dark side, if you will. And, and he's just delighted to be able to bring the healing power of the gospel and God's word mm-hmm. apply it to people's lives, people that he hadn't been able to help for years. Yeah. Wow. That's huge. Can, can you really quick, uh, can you help us think through, the difference between psychology and psychiatry. I, I always just think drugs, you know, psychiatrists just use drugs and psychologists usually have you lay on your back and they're going to talk about your mother and stuff. Okay. Well, it's not, it's not a really <laughs> psychiatrist is going to be an MD. Okay. So they've got pretty 
um, advanced scientific and scientific mm-hmm. training. They do understand the mechanisms of the brain. Mm-hmm. They do understand how the brain and the body relate to each other. Um, they also have a tendency to want to investigate organic causes like hypothyroidism or a tumor or Hashimoto's disease. There's one of those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, where a psychologist, the medical aspect of it isn't even really part of the conversation unless it's on that initial intake. When, you know, was the last time you had a physical, what, you know, were you diagnosed with anything? Are you on any medications for any medical conditions? Mm-hmm. Other than that, it's not even part of the conversation for the most part. Wow. That's so interesting. Do do they have uh, do they do they have a good working relationship, or is it often uh, contentious where you know they're, they're throwing stuff at each other, saying those guys just want to give you drugs and these guys don't want to do anything? Sometimes, but I think for the most part, they see themselves as two sides to the same coin. Okay. Problem yeah. is, not the coin of the realm of the kingdom of God. So right. Yeah. Yeah, that's not not the best coin. That's interesting. Okay. Well, well, sticking with this this theme of common grace. Um, I wanted to kind of popcorn some questions at you and see how how we can make sense of this. So uh, you work with, you you specialize in childhood trauma. Is that right? Well, trauma and especially interpersonal trauma. Uh So it can be childhood trauma. That's where I started. Yeah. But it can be, you know, like we talk about um, domestic oppression, domestic violence, Mm -hmm. um, um, sex trafficking, oh, yeah. kidnapping. The, the big one. It was, there's a name that you said for the big ones. Well, it's called uh, high-end counseling. High-end. Yeah, that's right. That's right. High-end. So um, do you ever – do you ever – well, let's go with Piaget first. Uh, that, that's someone I know who, who I, I like. I like the kind of development stuff, and I think there's some philosophy stuff in there that's really interesting – uh, what do you make of, of Piaget? Is he helpful for, for you in, in doing your practice? Is there anything that, that's uh, left over since you uh, recovered from your psychology days? Um, so his focus mm-hmm. was child development. So he's got, um, and you know, it's funny when you see pictures of him, um, he, he looks like a, a, a vicar at a, a you know, out uh, of a Church of England church. He just hmm. is, you know, this real friendly, um, uh, friendly looking, gentle, uh, real caring individual. He just kind of looks that way. Huh. But Piaget's basic premise was he, he talked about cognitive development, mm-hmm. which is something that is actually trackable and observable. But then he talked about genetic epistemology. Mm-hmm. So, and we see this um, kind of with uh, um, Kreplin in Germany. Germany and Geneva are kind of, you know, connected through through this industry, if you will. But um, he, through observation, he was able to track particular patterns. So he, you know, when when you when you take a look at, um, we know that there's certain things we just kind of know um, that our own experience and observation support. Yeah. Right. So it's like um, things like, oh, let's see, someplace between the age of five and eight years old is the, where a child really locks into the difference between reality and fantasy because mm-hmm. up to that point the little blue person on tv is just as real as mm. sibling down the hall or yeah. the mom that picks me up when i'm sad yeah they don't make those kinds of distinctions because cognitively the way the way the brain is developed and the where that information has coral been correlated hasn't developed to that point mm. Think of it just as like if I put seeds in the ground between you say, let's say I plant apple seeds. It's going to take eight to 10 years before I get an apple tree that will produce apples. Right. But there's a whole lot of stages of development. It's still an apple tree, 
but there are a whole lot of stages of development it's going to go through before it's ready to produce fruit, Mm -hmm. right? Well, by God's design, living things do go through stages of development. Human beings, it's it's more complex because we are more complex creatures. Yeah. So when you, uh, you know, the saying generally, um, by the time a child is five years old, they've developed about 80% of their character and personality. Wow. But that's because they're so, they are like professional learners mm-hmm. in, in the early, early stages. Uh, we have a, we just have a grand, brand new granddaughter, three weeks old now. And watching her make eye contact and watching what's happening yeah. And because of the, the brain studies that I've been invested in for 25 years, I know some of the things that are going on with neuroconnectors in her yeah. brain and watching her interact with her bigger sister and then dad and then mom. It's all different, but there's similarities. These are things that are observable, common grace. It doesn't matter what your worldview is. Okay. What, where, we, where we differ is the why mm-hmm. and the significance. and. Yeah when those things break down, how do you address it? Okay. Yeah. How, how do we go about um, uh, adjudicating, making sense of um, where this is common grace, uh, observable facts kind of stuff, where or where this is uh, interpretation and maybe interpretation from a, a contrary worldview? How, how do we go about making sense of that? Well, we do the same kind of exercise that we do just in the biblical counseling environment. Mm-hmm. Um. Like I, I do a training with uh, students in our counseling team, just kind of a refresher a couple times a year. We'll sit in a large room together and I'll hand out a piece of paper and it's a case study. And it'll be some, you know, be built off of some counseling case that I've had in my travels. And up on the dry erase board, we put three columns. We put one column that's no. What are the facts that we really know? Mm-hmm. The middle column is what do we assume? And then the third column is what do we wonder? Mm-hmm. When we look at these things, what do we really know? Um, think about mathematics. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, mathematically, one plus one is two. Mm-hmm. But there are applications of one plus one where it actually equals three. A fertile man coming together with a fertile woman actually is going to make a third. Okay. Yeah. So we observe that. It's not raw mathematics. So Mm -hmm. it's what we call, uh, um, what is the term? We do it in logic all the time, uh, abduction. Oh, yeah. Abductive reasoning. Abductive reasoning. So we say, okay, our tendency, though, is to say, okay, because, because these things are known, I know this too, mm-hmm. right? We don't realize that we're doing that. We're, we don't realize that we're actually adding a premise in that doesn't logically follow, mm-hmm. assuming that that is a logical conclusion. Yeah. So having these divisions, when we look at these things, what do, I, what do we really know? Mm-hmm. What are we assuming? And then what do we wonder? Mm-hmm. If, we, if we will allow for that wonder column, we leave ourselves in that place where we hold loosely to the things that we cannot be certain of. We hold more tightly to things we can be confident of. Mm-hmm. And we fo- hold firmly to things we are sure of. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's helpful. Uh, f- following up on... Following up to this this uh, this idea of, of common grace, adjudicating, and, and making sense of facts that are for everyone, um, would you would you um, see like the twelve stages of grief? Like, is is, is that five something? Grief. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, five. Yeah. There's no science for that. Okay. Okay. It's all it's all built off of observation with a very specific and narrow uh, pool. Mm-hmm. This was someone who was uh, providing palliative care, mm-hmm. and she anecdotally made notes on the responses of people when they were given the news that they were terminal. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's what this five stages of grief is built off of. Very narrow construct, and and about information about yourself. 
right. being terminal. Right. Okay. You right. So then all of a sudden this got over extrapolated. All, all you know, if we can say, okay, this is a framework for starting to understand grief. Yeah. But it, this idea of five stages of grief again, there's no there's no real empirical data for this. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. I, yeah, I think I've heard. Maybe you said this, but I, I talked with one of my other friends who's into psychological research and stuff. Where, where if you overemphasize this system, you accidentally like leave someone in one of those stages, or assume, or you 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 make them think that they're in this stage and they need to stay in this stage, or they need to get out of it and get on to the next stage. Ah, uh, mm, yeah. So you put this undue burden on them. Yeah. Grief is a very personal, mm. objective matter. In the, in the human experience. Yeah. So in that case, you are, you're analyzing the process, uh, the proposed process based on its own merits and saying, look, I'm, I'm looking at the research. I'm looking at how this came about and seeing this has this narrow scope. If it, if it does have the scope, if it is proper to say that it, it works in this case, which has been ballooned out of a portion. And so it's not something we should use. Part of that is because we're interpreters by nature. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So from the moment we're born, even before we're born, but from the moment we're born, we start developing this interpretive matrix. Yep. And and we're we start interpreting life based on how we've interpreted life. Yeah. Early in life, like we're talking about developmentally, all kinds of influences because it's all it's all almost all like you know ninety nine percent is pretty open to being molded and shaped. Mm-hmm. There's an old saying, uh, a man is born as many men, but dies as only one. Huh. So many possibilities from the time he's born, but through yeah. certain choices and experiences, options and opportunities fall by the wayside. And from multiple paths, it comes down and he ends up on one final path. Yeah. Beautiful. It's a beautiful picture. Yeah, I love that. Um, but understanding that, that, um, when, when when we take a look at at what's happening in the human experience, there's no master matrix. So you take your yeah. frame of reference and my frame of reference, okay? Um, and then we then we sit down and we talk to somebody from Kenya mm-hmm. who came to know the Lord. You know, at, at, part of the Maasai tribe out you know, walking, walking the goats to water. Mm-hmm. Right. And came to know the Lord out there. Well, their experience of, of salvation and what praise and worship looks like and even feels like it's going to be completely different. Right. And if we're using our interpretive matrix to interpret their experience, we're not going to be able to be on the same page and vice versa. That's part of the way we have the divisions we do. Um, even even within some of the similar pools of, of community. Um, <clears throat> but that said, if we're able to say, okay, even though this person's, the, the details of this person's conversion experience are different than mine, mm-hmm. the, the environment that this person lives in is far different than mine, the culture, the language, the priorities, the customs, the habits, all of those things are remarkably different. One thing we have in common is that we have a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We are adopted children of the Most High God. Mm -hmm. And there's a a lot of what that looks like is open. Yeah. But the thing is that we're uncomfortable with a lack of certainty. Mm Mm-hmm word picture that can be helpful. So let's say you go out on the balcony, the 40th floor of a building. So you're 400 feet in the air. Mm-hmm. You step out on the balcony and the slider closes behind you and you're the lock click. Now there's no railing on the edge of that. Where are you going to stand? Pretty close to that door. A lot of people will, right? Um, so now let's say there's a railing, but it's made out of cooked spaghetti noodles. Yeah, not not going near that. Okay, but let's say there's a railing and it's made out of uh, out of paper. No, not going still. Okay, some people will get a little bit out because you know, but let's say there's let's say there's a railing made out of oak and iron. It goes from mid chest to mid shin. 
where are you going to stand? Yeah, I, I can trust some oak. Yeah, I, I think I'd go out a little bit closer. A lot of people will actually go out and lean on it and get a look at the view because they know where they're safe. Yeah. Uncertainty makes us feel unsafe, which mm-hmm. makes us fearful, which makes us reactive. Yeah. And and so and that's what you're saying. We we want this uh, over our overarching overarching system where we can say this is how it works. This is if everyone goes through this exact thing, so we can all know that we're progressing, and you know that's the way it is. And in a in a sense, I think I can trust it. Yes. Yeah. And I know I can track my progress. Um, I, that's a big one for me. Uh, I'm a I'm the fourth born. And I always, uh, I think everyone kind of assumed I knew what was up. You know, my, my parents taught my three older siblings how to do laundry and how to change their sheets and stuff and kind of forgot about me. And uh, you just kind of assume he, he knows that I, I'm, I'm sure I taught that four times. And so playing catch up, I'm always like, what, what's going on? You know? And so now that's kind of why I like to research and stuff. I want to know it for myself, but I, I hate that uncertainty that, that makes, that drives me nuts. I feel exactly you said scared, uncertain, uh, incompetent. Yeah. You feel lost and yeah. you feel like some way, somehow you're going to blow it. Mm-hmm. Well, that speaks to worth and value. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's the, the, so the ramifications of this are, are, are really strong and think about this. So you find something and say, okay, this makes sense to me and I feel safe. Well, that's an emotional commitment, mm-hmm. not an intellectual commitment. Yeah. So now we're emotionally invested in this idea. Hmm. And the more, the longer we have this emotional investment, the more rigidly and tightly we hold it. The problem is that if it's not tr- really true, yeah, and someone goes to take that away from us, they got a fight on their hands because yeah. you are trying to put me in danger, and that's what we see happening. Yeah, because the church really surrendered to the scientists of. M- modern psychiatry and modern psychological theory because we're using all this technical language and doctors and all this stuff. Well, of course we respect our doctors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They know more. They've got more education. Yeah. Well, education doesn't equal qualification. Yeah. Warren, do you remember when that happened? Is that, was that, was there a a date or a series of dates or? Well, yeah, you can see progressively, but late 1800s, of course, that's when things really launched, but you already had people, you had Americans who were over there um, studying with Wilhelm Wundt and, you know, first PhD in psychology and then coming over here and founding the APA. I mean, you know, so it, it was it was already in the works because we can trace back um, things, things similar to modern psychology back to, uh, well, you know, um, um, uh, uh, was it uh, John, uh, John Golf? John Goff, what is it? Ayn Rand, what is the line? Um, oh, I don't know. I know Ayn Rand. I don't know. Um, I can't remember the line. But there's a real real historical character who lived at the same time as Benjamin Rush. Okay. Okay, Civil uh, Revolutionary War time. Uh-huh. And diametrically opposed in their approach, um, John Galt. John Galt is actually using Christianity and those principles and dealing with people with mental illnesses, mm-hmm. right? But Benjamin Rush took more of a scientific approach. And when you take a look at the history, it's kind of terrifying. It's inhumane and a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So it really ends up being, well, why did, why did uh, um, Edison, why did his invention get promoted and Tesla get left in the, there's dynamics at work outside of this narrow world yeah. that we're looking at, this narrow construct that we're looking at. So you've got all these influences. Mm-hmm. But people were taught to respect people with, high, with more education. Yeah. Well, if those, if those folks really aren't, if they're atheists and they're telling you that this is really what's going on, but it's not built off of a biblical worldview, and you're taught to respect these people, and you have enough of them saying it. We've seen it happen in our society. Yeah. You say something enough times, loud enough, long enough, it become it becomes what is true, whether it is or not. Yeah. Well, that that reminds me. Um, I, I, a question I wanted to ask you: Do we? 
this goes back to the Jerusalem and Athens or Jerusalem and in Germany, maybe, or, or Switzerland. Uh, do we just say, you know, basically like to hell with psychology? Uh, they, they've, they've developed these principles. It's out and let's start our own thing and be biblical counselors. Or is there any, is there any room to try and reform and say, you know, challenge them on their own assumptions? Reform what? Because they have their own priesthood. Yeah. Okay. Which is not the priesthood of believers. Mm-hmm. They have their own Bible, if you will, which is the DSM, mm-hmm. which is not rooted in, in objective reality or truth. Mm-hmm. What's redeemable in that? Mm-hmm. Sure. There are things that come in grace. All right. It doesn't matter whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. You, you can sit down and you say, okay, this is what an abuse cycle looks like. Mm. This is what an addictive pattern looks like. It's, it's empirical. It's something that's observable no matter what your worldview is. Yeah. And we do have to give the, the folks in the mental health industry credit mm-hmm. because they do want to, they've always wanted to figure out what's going on. Right. So the, the observation, the, the, the studies and those kinds of things, Lots of time, energy, and money have been invested in that. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't need to duplicate that. Where we differ, though, is what – so where does this come from? What's the cause of this? Mm -hmm. But you've got people in the the world of psychology and psychiatry that have have mistaken ideas, but you have people within within, um, uh, Christendom that have mistaken ideas about the same thing, right? Right. Right. About abuse patterns, right? Well, well, we believe there's really a genetic component. Well, you have other people in the church say, well, this is generational curse. Yeah. Sorry, kids, you, you, you're mistaken here. Yeah. The idea of generational curse is rooted in poor hermeneutics. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's good to hear yeah. you say that. Yeah. yeah. One line out of Deuteron- or out of Exodus, oh, visiting the sins of the fathers of the third and fourth generation. Right. But the parallel in Deuteronomy says, of those that hate me. Yeah. So it's not, this idea of generational curses is not really supported in the scripture. Yeah. So when you take a look at, oh, well, there's a genetic factor. Yeah, the genetic factor is you're a fallen human being who not only has the, the, the you know, imputed sin, but the inherited sin and the individual sin. I mean, sin's at work. Yeah. Right? So, but being able to say, okay, all of us have a tendency to be very selfish. Mm-hmm. All of us have a tendency to be self-centered and without other factors coming in to mold and shape that and move us away from that being our primary motivator, then we're going to end up being narcissistic or even full-blown narcissists. Yeah. So we all have the same propensity, but it's not the only genetic part of it is our fallenness. Hmm. Yeah, that well, that brings us to like the the nature and nurture kind of question that, you know, it's it's a it's a cliche, but so if 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 I'm trying to pick my words well here, if if there's generational, multi generational suicide in the family, um, and this is a tough one. I'm sorry for for people listening, um, but we got to talk about it. It's important. It. Some people would say, well, they were probably. The father was probably tempted and, uh, you know, t- tempted by the same devil, the, the same demon that, that tempted the son. And other people would say, no, there's probably something with both their neurochemistry and he, uh, you know, it transferred down. Some others would say there's a, a mix, you know, and it's what, what do you make of that when when there are like specific sins, specific struggles like that, that, that seem like they are passing down uh, generationally? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, we, and it comes up a lot. Matter of fact, my friend and colleague, Daniel Berger. Um, that I mentioned last time, just yeah. published a book on suicidal ideation mm-hmm. from a biblical counseling and a science, science perspective. Okay. One of the things we see common is that when one person cracks the shell on suicide in a family or in a, in a core group, mm-hmm. a community, the idea of suicide um, has been introduced Interesting. Okay, and people, and so yeah, because the the mystery of suicide is now gone. Mm-hmm. One of the things that remember that uncertainty. One of the things that often keeps us from crossing certain lines is the uncertainty of what exactly is the cost going to be. Yeah. Right. So, 
that's not, that's a very common factor. And we see that supported from the secular research into suicidal ideation and suicide completion. Mm. Wow, that's so interesting. So that that I don't want to stress anyone out or anything, but there there are there are ramifications to our actions that go on way way beyond us. And so if you're the first one in the, in your family to do that, you you may have well you may well have opened up the door, cracked, you know, cracked it for for others to do that. The 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 mirror of that though is is where our hope is because yeah. you may be the first person your generational level to stop the ongoing cycles of abuse in your family yes and so your generation starts to do away with it yeah but it works both ways wow yeah yeah that's great i'm so glad you brought in the hope aspect there yeah breaking that chain wow that's huge well does that work um does that work also so so that's a specific study um do you think that carries over to like uh, adultery if if your father cheated on your your mother, does does that similarly work? That that kind of cracked it for you, then, or 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 is that not? Uh... You see, you do see patterns in families, mm-hmm. right? Um, what you know, children children learn what they live mm-hmm. type of idea. Um, I kind of I kind of joke with some of my. So if I grow up in Alabama. I'm going to talk a certain way. Now, I ain't got no accent. Y'all do. Yeah. Right? I just absorbed it. I just picked it up. It's not something that was intentionally taught to me. Mm -hmm. It's just something that was part of the culture. Yeah, you caught it. Yeah. Well, you caught it. You didn't really even catch it. You just kind of absorbed it and adapted to it. Okay. Okay. We see this with people who um, I, I deal with survivors of narcissistic abuse a lot. And um, one of the things we talk about is why the church is the primary place where narcissists will hide out. Huh. And that's part of the book that I'm, I'm working on right now. But if you take a look at four of the five main kinds of people that narcissists will target to prey upon, the, the four of those five are very Christ-like char- character traits. Trusting. Merciful, forgiving, compassionate, empathetic, gracious, merciful, yeah, very forgiving, yeah. Uh, you know, op- optimists, you know, just, just, you just see this. Yeah. The number one place you find people like that is in the church. Wow. Target rich environment. Yeah. Big time. Right. The thing is, so the fifth category of person that's often targeted is who end up in these kinds of relationships are some people like you, you have someone who grew up with a narcissistic or what we call a narcissistic family system. Okay. So that's where the image of the family is more important than the individual members of the family. Yes. The the needs of the individuals of the family are expendable and sacrificable for the image of the family. Yeah. Okay. So the thing is, is that I know how to be in this kind of relationship. Hmm. So me gravitating to that kind of a relationship is pretty, pretty normal because it's what I'm used to. Yeah. Yeah. And when I, I say it's like a relational accent. Yeah. So, and again, these are patterns that I've noticed and, and some of my colleagues have noticed. I've been doing this over 30 years and that's mm-hmm. my primary area of expertise. Yeah. And again, this is, it's, anecdotal but it's there's so much of it and it's not well i have this assumption and so i see it mm-hmm. no, no 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 because i'm like okay what is going on here yeah These patterns just like the gal who came up with the five stages of grief it's observable the question is where is this coming from that's where we differ does how does that move from anecdotal to a pattern, you know, beyond anecdote, is there a process for that uh, in, in your field? Um, well, in business, work? Absolutely, well, so, okay, let's take a look at, if you ask every believer that you know, that, you, that you've had a conversation with in the last 30 days, mm-hmm. if you ask every one of those believers, what is the gospel? How many different answers are you going to get? You might get 30 different answers. Right. So, 
And are, are do you think any of them are really going to be wrong? Depends on who I ask, but uh, but you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah, yeah, right. So back in the early church, before they had the scripture, which is would be our science textbook, if you will, mm-hmm. they had what was called the regula fide, the rule of faith. Mm-hmm. So it was it was the the truths articulated in scripture that were captured and rearticulated, reshared. You see Paul do that a lot mm-hmm. in his writings. Well, that's kind of where we are, is that this idea of needing laboratory, needing all the scientific proof, that has basically been promoted by the scientistic folks. Yeah. But people don't live that way. Because think about this. How many people do you think go out to their car and get in, get it, go out and get ready to drive their car who don't have empirical data that the brakes are functioning? Yeah. Right. See, people, is, we have a moral certainty. Yeah. Based on how many times we've driven that and the brakes have worked, and the cars around me, all their brakes are working too. I, it's reasonable for me to assume, barring other evidence, that mm-hmm. my, my brakes are going to work. Yeah. That's, so that, that actually brings up the problem of induction, which, which we use in apologetics, some of us, to argue for God, that, you know, if... If, if there were no God who was, you know, regulating reality, you couldn't trust that, and you'd be unjustified in your beliefs. Which is interesting. But, I love yeah. Anselm's argument, though. Anselm's. Anselm, yeah. Um, there's nothing in the human. There's nothing any human being can can imagine or think that does not already exist in some manner or form. Because hmm. you can't describe what blueberry sounds like. Or what middle C tastes like. Yeah. How about like a unicorn? You... But what? Horned animals? And, yeah. Right? So yeah, horse and narwhal. Yeah. All variations of what already yeah. exists. Yeah, yeah. Second premise. Throughout human history, and this is in the fourth century, right? Fifth century. Throughout human history, all people groups have had concepts of God. Mm-hmm. So we're compelled to draw the conclusion, therefore God exists in some manner or form. That's so an interesting take on the ontological. One of the most brilliant arguments for the existence of God in, of some kind. Yeah. In in like, I'm thinking cognitive science of religion kind of stuff where I think there's, I think they take for granted that people, there are people who don't have concepts of God. And I want to, I always want to take issue with that because I think theologically that's not right. Get um, it. Things they assume, yeah, but they have an emotional commitment to that idea. Yeah, have no data to support it. Yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not well versed, and I need to look into that more and, and see what they would, what they would present as evidence and and different. It's always a, some tribe I haven't heard of, um, but yeah, that, that's never heard of. <laughs> yeah, the the problem is all they need is one, but, but yeah, um, I I definitely hear that. Uh, I wanted to to continue on. With uh, oh, actually, uh, another question for um, we talked about we're going back to uh, patterns and generational patterns kind of stuff. Why? So, f- just kind of you know armchair uh, psychology thinking. Why is it that we we continue that pattern instead of go the exact opposite way? Why why isn't it more common for people? Maybe it is more common. Maybe you tell me for people to be exactly opposite of their father. You know, people, I'm turning to my father. Why isn't it the exact opposite? I hated that or I don't want to do that. How how come it comes more naturally to follow? People to find a trap because they, like I talk about my own story. I knew Mm -hmm. what I didn't want. Yeah, right, right. But I didn't have a picture of what I wanted instead. So I Uh, had no target. Yes. Yes, that makes sense. And can you say that again about children? You you do what you see. You do what you learn. You you learn what you live. Learn what you live. That's good. Right. right? So you basically, I mean, the way the ways that we learn, and Piaget helped with this, mm-hmm. but also some of the cognitive, edu- you know, learning things that have developed since then, even with brain scans and PET scans and. FMRIs and those kinds of things, seeing how how this works. There's so many things that influence us in our learning that are not def- really definable. They're very nuanced. Yeah, you can't follow a straight. And this is what people are looking for. Right. 
they're looking for this empirical proof, this mathematical certainty, but the vast majority of life doesn't work that way. And we don't even really live that way. Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of inductive reasoning, abductive reasoning, whether those are the same things, but yeah, exactly. And, And science isn't really like that. You know, science is empirical. Science doesn't well, deal in, in deductive. Science to prove scientific method is actually scientific. So what do you yeah. do with that? It's all right. assumptive. It's assumptive. Yeah. It's a moral certainty, but mm-hmm. it's not an absolute certainty. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so so moving back on uh, to the, the popcorn questions, just these are just random ones that I've thought of. Uh, a lot of times I'll hear – so I like I like listening to Jordan Peterson. I like the conversations he brings up because I – it, it helps me with a lot of college students and when they hear that I listen to him or, I've, you know, and I, I like a lot of what he says when he's, pre- when he's getting more practical. Yeah. Um, but when he, he, he kind of introduced me to this idea of psychologists or um, maybe psychiatrists, but uh, pe- people studying the behaviors of rats and then deducing out, you know, uh, lessons for, for childhood development. And, you know, if a, if a rat is too big and he doesn't let a smaller rat win, then, uh, the rat won't play with him. The little rat won't play with the big rat anymore. So he's learned he's got to, you know, let him win like 12% of the time, something like that. And then we draw these kind of moral lessons. We draw these kind of developmental lessons. Have you have you seen that? What what do we make of, of those kind of things? What I find interesting is say, okay, how many creatures on the planet have eyes? Yeah, a lot. Is that part of, what the designer and creator knew would work that he duplicated out across his creation. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so now this gets into, okay, do, you know, soul, spirit, dichotomy, trichotomy type thing. The question mm-hmm. is, you know, we, we just, uh, one of the modules I'm teaching right now is humanity and sin. Mm-hmm. And we talked about, okay, we talked about the Imago Dei. Are there, are there cre- creatures that God has created that have aspects to their being that are similar to humans, like tendency toward personality or th- those kinds of things? What is that? Is there an immaterial aspect to animals yeah. similar to the immaterial aspect of human beings? Mm-hmm. So what makes it, well, there has to be something in the immaterial aspect of human beings that makes them remarkably different. Yeah. Right. Right. So again, because a small child will lose a pet, and the very first question is, where did he go? It's a very distinct person, and that's not just an anthropomorphism. That's not a personification. You know, that that, that's not that's not making humans human like something that isn't. This is observable. Yeah. Right. And the thing is, is it's it's across the board, right? Think about people that you've known who've had had a, a pet, especially like a dog, for a long period of time. When that animal dies, they experience the same kind of grief that they were for losing a loved one. Maybe not the same death, but the same kind. Mm-hmm. Does that mean there's something wrong with them? No. Only if you're very rigid in your theology. Mm-hmm. And you, I'm not going to send anybody to you for counseling if. <laughs> Yeah. The point, right. is, the point is, there's a whole lot of things that we don't have mathematical, scientific certainty to. Yeah. But there's something we know. Yeah. Right. So when we're taking a look at, at um, um, this, this thing about rats. Yeah. Okay. Well, God created all of his creation to be in mutual community and interdependent. Mm-hmm. Look at all the systems in the universe. They're independent, but they're also all interdependent. Yeah. That's just God's design for the universe. Right. And there are certain things that I believe he designed into living creatures that are that are similarities because it's his 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 design works. Yeah. So so with that in mind then, uh, a Christian could look at would would it be wise? Would it be smart? Should should we do this? Uh, look at cre- creatures that are not made in the image of God and and draw lessons uh, from those creatures, like like rats. When it comes to non medical things, I don't think so. Okay. 
because all we're doing is we're, we're recognizing a correlation. If we study human beings in light of what Scripture says, 2 Peter 1.3 says, Scripture has provided us what we need regarding life and faith. Yeah. Come on. If you want to study family dynamics, take a look at Joseph's family, Joseph and his brothers. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Right? Yeah. If, you, if you want to do family structures and in, in, in interpersonal dynamics of, of, uh, of uh, uh, blood siblings and half-siblings, and it's an incredible study. Yeah. You don't need to look at monkeys or rats. I was just or, thinking, yeah, bonobos always come up. Right. It's right there in Scripture. And if you read what's there yeah. and you correlate it to what you've experienced yourself and things you've heard and things you know other people have experienced you can see these patterns you don't need rats and monkeys for that. yeah that, that's so interesting uh this is just super random but i have this this video i put on youtube i called it uh squirrel jujitsu because uh i was supposed to be studying greek and i'm looking out my window and these squirrels are fighting and they're actually doing like some moves now that i know a little bit more about jujitsu they're doing neon belly you know they're they're basing out and it's it's wild to see but i wouldn't watch that video and try to learn techniques uh, to, to bring to jujitsu class because I could ask with words my professor and ask him to show me the, a, a move instead of trying to extract out some kind of lesson from a squirrel. Yeah. Even though they're doing similar things that help each other wrestle around. There's so many dynamics that are different. Body structure. Right. Breathing patterns. Even where the vital organs are. All those things are. Oh, that's a good yeah. point too. Right. There's so many things that are different. Yeah. Right. You probably end up getting hurt real bad if you walk into a go rolling with somebody that's experienced, you know? Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, well, uh, Warren, uh, can I ask you uh, another just random one? Is that, you got time sure. for that? Uh, how about like Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs? There's no science for it. And he even, even admitted it. Huh. Okay. No, no science whatsoever. Read Maslow. There's no science for it. By his own admission, he was observing two professors that he had a, a strong attachment to and a great deal of admiration for. Mm-hmm. And he mapped this out based on how what he believed, what he believed, not even through interviewing them, but what he believed was that what, what propelled them to be successful. Yeah. Okay. Is there, um, in your study of scripture, is there like a... a biblical hierarchy of needs that, that comes forth or or have you not read with, with that in mind yeah kind of because i was i come from that world a little bit so you kind of you when you're reading scripture you're running it through the, that interpretive matrix of what you've what you've heard before right we do see and i think the the example of christ is is an ideal example mm-hmm. um Jesus, by becoming God incarnate, yeah. sanctified the entire human experience from conception to death. Now, I want you to think for a minute. And when, when Jesus was born as a brand new infant, mm-hmm. as God, he experienced things that God had never experienced before. Mm-hmm. He was totally dependent on fallen human beings, mm-hmm. totally at the mercy of fallen human beings. He'd never been hungry before mm-hmm. and needed to depend on somebody else to provide. Yeah. But he'd never been hugged before either. Mm-hmm. And so you take a look at how a child develops. Then go to Matthew 18. The big dogs are arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Right. And he, Jesus calls this toddler, this little boy, the Greek word there is toddler. Mm-hmm. And he says, knuckleheads, listen up. Unless you're converted and become just like this little boy, you won't even see the kingdom. Yeah. Because the kingdom of heaven was made for these folks. These yeah. people, right? Mm-hmm. So... Our sense of need, remember the kingdom of God, the economy of God's kingdom is flipped upside down from the economy of the world. Right. So it's in that it's in that trusting, it's in that un, underdeveloped selfishness. Think about how rapidly forgiving and reconciling children or small children are. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's just incredible. We have to unlearn 
those things. We have we are impacted by by sin and the effects of sin more and more and more as life goes on. Yeah, we develop and we harden and but our basic need is to become just like that little child. Hmm. To be to realize I am totally dependent on God. I ain't got this. Mm-hmm. It says apart from me you can do nothing. Maslow says you have everything you need within you to reach your fullest potential. They're diametrically yeah. opposed. Yeah. That's really helpful thinking about the that that view of of, of being dependent. It's not it's not uh being foolish like a child. It's being dependent like a child, saying like mom and dad are here, you know, I, I depend on them kind of even though they're not they're not using those words. They know what's up in that sense, yeah. Right. The thing is, is that think about the language. He's 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 Heavenly Father, right? Mm-hmm. We're adopted as sons and daughters. But there's also mother language used throughout Scripture. Mm-hmm. The comforting, the nurturing, uh, the, the protecting, uh, uh, as a mother hen gathers her Gathers, yeah. yeah. So you see this language used all throughout Scripture. And that's, and that's helpful thinking through what what faith is you know and putting trust in your heavenly father and and it, it kind of comes back to the self-sovereignty type stuff where you're you're trying to be your own father you're trying to be your own self-sufficient source and you're not recognizing your that you are dependent even in rebellion against god you are still dependent on him for your every breath for you know the, the clothes and the roof over your head yeah, yeah. well just i I don't want to miss this. Yeah. Go back with the first part of a conversation. People who are Christians who practice psychology are good-hearted people mm-hmm. who have been convinced that psychology provides the answers. Yeah. But it can't because it doesn't start with the paradigm, the construct, even the framework that God himself has declared is in existence. Mm-hmm. It actually denies the fullness of reality. Yeah disconnected from reality well you know what in the world of psychology and mental health if you're disconnected from reality you're actually considered insane yeah disassociate disassociative disorder associative yeah yeah disassociative is not a connect is different but dissociation yeah dissociation okay um but see even in that they're looking for answers. Why are you looking beyond what God has already provided and promised you is enough? Hmm. Why is it not enough? That's my question. Why is the word of God not enough? Yeah. Because yeah. you're a better student of what comes from the atheistic world than you are of the word of God. That's why. Yeah. And you've been convinced from day one because of the entire society around you, the education system you've been a part of, your own families, your your own community, everybody is mm-hmm. singing the same song. Yeah. That's a really convicting point that you just brought up too about you know, you know people could quote, you know, Jung better than they could quote scripture. You know, I'm I'm guilty of that when it comes to apologetics and stuff and, and that's why I've been working on my scripture memory better because I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be someone who can t- quote people who talk about the Bible better than I can quote the Bible myself. There are people who can name the seven dwarfs but not the twelve disciples. <laughs> yeah, right. That's that's true. Yeah. It goes with Disney, it goes with, with everything. That's a really it's a good point. It's a really convicting point. And again, this is what I really like about your story is that You've been someone who achieved in that realm and then had to give it up based on conviction and then started a different, a whole different uh, field, which, you know, related field, but still different. And I think that that is another barrier, another block. If, if what Warren's saying is right, then I've, I've wasted some time maybe. And I don't, I don't, I don't want anyone to think that because God's don't look at his voice of time. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Because if I hadn't invested what I did, I would not have the ability right. to speak to these things and understand these things the way that I do. Exactly. Exactly. That's that's the point I wanted to hit that God God is the one who wrote this story and everything matters in your story. Yeah. That's well, huge. Everything matters in everybody's story. Right. Because remember like I like I often say I, I always want to leave people with this idea. Mm-hmm. That outside of creation nothing exists tangibly exists. No time, no space, no matter. Mm-hmm. 
God sovereignly chose to create the one universe of all possible universes of an infinite number and variety of universes, infinite number and variety of creatures, mm-hmm. infinite number and variety of circumstances, infinite number and variety of options and choices. He sovereignly chose to change, to create this universe that you exist in that will accomplish his optimum best will overall. Mm-hmm. That's the hope I always want people to, to walk away from. Yeah. Yeah. You may have gone down the wrong path, right? But what is repentance, but returning to the right path. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's good news. That's awesome. And it, it, it really brings value and meaning to your life, right? Like God chose to create you. You have a purpose and you're made in the image of the one who created everything. Yeah, because there's many universes, hmm. new universes you created that you weren't even the thought. Yeah, right. You specifically and intentionally exist in this universe at this time in this place. Mm-hmm. That is his optimum best will. Yeah. Man, amen. Hey, man, Warren, we covered uh, a lot here. I still have some more uh, random stuff. You, you got to come on again. We got to talk some more. This has really been helpful. Um the, the the listeners love it and they love your perspective and, and it's challenging because you're challenging a lot of our assumptions that we come in uh, about psychology, psychiatry, uh, medication and biblical counseling. So uh, thanks so much for, for helping to set the record straight, for challenging us, for, for poking and prodding and for, uh, for backing it up with scripture. It's been, it's been awesome these last two times. I look forward to That's part of my advantage, not growing up in the church. Yeah. I came in, I didn't know anything about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, I was hungry to learn all of it as much as I could, and I still am. Yeah. Yeah. Again, we're talking about stories and stuff, but but seeing seeing God redeem your story and then how useful it is. You know, you're you're more than your story. You're more than your use and stuff like that. But I'm so glad that, that God made you the way he did uh, for, for my benefit, for, for everyone who you you, uh, you touch okay. with your with your life. So. Very gracious. Because if it had been me, I would have killed me a long time ago. <laughs> I, I think the same way about myself. Yeah. Yeah. God is good, man. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, this, this has been Parker's Pensies. We can talk about this some more, uh, Lord willing. We'll, we'll have, a some more conversation about psychology and, uh, the Christian faith and common grace, but for now it's going to have to do it. Uh, this has been Parker's Pensies and as always all glory to God. <laughs>